What's up, guys? Welcome to another episode of the Speak the Language podcast. I'm pretty excited about this week's episode. If you remember last spring, we did an episode called, called Corona Gobblers with Dr. Mike Chamberlain. Um, and Dr. Chamberlain is, he's the most well-informed person I know on uh, wild turkeys. And just, it, it was an incredibly fun conversation. And it was one of the most popular episodes of the entire last year. And some of y'all were already asking for us to have it back on. So Dr. Mike and Jordan and myself had a really fun conversation. We kind of touched on some of the same subjects that we touched on last spring, just kind of looking at them a year later. And then we talked about some things we haven't talked about before. But if you're someone that loves turkey hunting and has an interest in the bird and their ecology and just how they live, this is definitely a podcast that you will enjoy. And also, before we dive right into it, want to make sure that I mentioned to go to the Primo's YouTube channel. We're dropping some new exciting stuff on there. And also, spring's coming up. We're talking about spring. We're talking about turkeys. The new stuff that I'm referring to is some new turkey hunts that have never been seen before. So go to Primo's Hunting, type in, I mean, go to YouTube, sorry, go to YouTube and type in Primo's Hunting and the Primo's Hunting YouTube channel will pop up and you'll be able to find it there. Also check out Onyx Hunt, download the Onyx Hunt app today. Use the promo code PRIMOS20 to save 20% off your Onyx membership. Enjoy the show. Cool. All right. Well, we're recording then. So welcome to this episode of the Speak the Language podcast. I would be lying if I said I was not looking forward to this one because uh, um, Dr. Chamberlain, I told you a little bit when I reached back out to you, we did an episode last spring with you, and that was probably one of our most popular episodes of last spring entirely, just because of the subject and subject matter and everything. And so um personally i wanted to have you back on but we've had a good many people reach out to us and ask to have you back on because i think it was just such an insightful podcast and one that you know a lot of people could learn from and and pick up on so really looking forward to this conversation by the way this is if you don't know jordan jordan was not joining us uh the last time we were on but jordan's normally on this podcast with me and uh yeah just excited to have you back on i'm glad to be here man it's uh it's been a while. I guess people were bored last spring, so <laughs> they didn't have much to do. So I guess the listening to me was was a respite, I guess, from all the chaos that was going on. Gotcha. Yeah, it was it was very chaotic, and and I definitely want to get into that. But as far as kind of a subject to open up with, I kind of wanted to do one. I don't know if you call it a fun one, but it was it was one that you've spoken on before. Um, you didn't, I don't think we touched on it on the podcast last year, but I've definitely heard you talk about it before. And I know it stirred up a lot of questions and everything. And so the first thing I want to ask you about is I've heard you talk about the ability to age two-year-old gobblers and spur length. That was a, that was a, a hot one, so to speak. Yeah, it blew my little mind when I heard <laughs> you talking about it. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I don't know anything. Yeah. Um, I get beat to hell about this question. Um, and I can only tell you what the research has shown. And people will argue with me all day long. And I just, I don't know what else to say, but the research has clearly shown. There, there was work back in the 1980s and 90s where they took known age birds and they radiographed the spur, the, the core of the spur. So basically, you know, x-ray the core of the spur from two-year-old and three-year-old birds. And they very clearly demonstrated that if you have a bird that you think is two 
or you have a bird that you think is three, there's about a 25% chance you're wrong. So when I say, well, you can't reliably age birds based on their spur length, people are like, well, yeah, you can. I'm like, well, okay, think about this. Step back and think a second. If you know you're wrong one out of four times, I don't call that reliable. Like if, I mean, when I argue with my wife, of course, I'm never right. But if I knew I was going to be wrong, one out of every four coin flips, that doesn't seem like a reliable shot to me. So that's when I say, hey, folks, you can't just glance at a spur and say, well, that's three quarters of an inch. He's a two-year-old. No, he could be three. He could be older than that. And this is what really kind of blows people's minds. But um, we have a paper that we're writing right now where we take known age birds from, from Texas all the way over to South Carolina, Rios and Easterns, hundreds of birds. And we captured them as jakes, put bands on them, and then they were harvested later in life. Mm-hmm. And what we have seen, what we're, we're going to show is that it is not uncommon at all to have a bird that's three, four, even five years old that has a spur that's an inch or less. Mm. And it's also not uncommon to have a two or three year old bird have inch and a quarter, inch and an eight. It's very common. In fact, I, I have a number of birds in Mississippi that I caught as poults. And we put, we used to put these little kind of poult leg bands on them and then mm. they were harvested, you know, sometime later. I had multiple birds that I banded as poults that were shot as two-year-olds that had inch and a quarter or better spurs. Really? Wow. So I just say that, and, and I know there are people that are going to listen to this and say, oh, he's full of it. He has no idea what he's talking about. Man, um, I, I, I know I want to say, because I got, I, I can only imagine how, you know, how much people reach out to you about that subject. Because I want to say, because again, I, I was trying to, I went and listened back to our episode last year because I wanted to make sure that we, we, I didn't really ask you the same questions twice. And so I was like, I know people were asking me about the spur and age relation thing. So I'm pretty sure I referenced you in another podcast and that's where that came from. But it was just so funny to me because I had, this is a personal friend of mine. I'm not going to say who it is, but he wouldn't, he's a personal friend of mine. So I can talk about him like this. He, this is, this was what he said. He said, man, I've killed several two-year-old birds and none of them had inch and a quarter spurs. And I was like, <laughs> how, do you, how, how do you know? How do you know <laughs> that he was two? You know? uh, yeah. Like, how are you knowing that? What do you, what are you quantifying that? How are you looking at that bird? Judging off of what you've just said about research, explain to me how you know that bird's two. Yeah. It just yeah. blows my mind. I, I had a, I had a guy reach out to me on, he actually tagged me on Instagram and he and I got into a back and forth. He called me out on his, on his page. And so I responded and I don't usually respond to, to people that are just all, you know, way off and left field, but, but he kept on, he just wouldn't stop. Mm-hmm. And so I engaged him and he was like, no, you're wrong. I've been watching these birds on my property for years. And when they're two years old, they have a certain length of spur. When they're three year, years old, they have a certain length of spur. And, and he went on in four and five and six. And 
and I just couldn't, I just couldn't get across to this person that unless you ban that bird as a juvenile, you don't know that they're just to your point, you don't know that they're a certain age. Um, now I will say that we do know that in general, in turkeys, spurs are supposed to grow as the bird ages. But if you think about all the things that go into bone growth in an animal or a human or any other critter, there's a lot of things involved in how something grows on a body. And there's also all sorts of variation geographically and all these things that we can't really account for uh, it's one of the hottest topics in, in the turkey world. And I, and I, I don't get beat up about many things, but I, I do get beat up about this topic. It's crazy. I can only imagine. Cause like I'm saying, I, I just referenced it and I had, I had folks all over me about that. People I didn't know reaching out to me on Instagram, personal friends of mine texting me. They're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, I didn't, and I didn't expect it to be that much of a hot topic. You <laughs> well, know? Yeah. Well, the way Lake and I, man, we turkey hunt, you know, we're, the way we just the way we enjoy the process of hunting if we get lucky and get a turkey we don't care how long his spurs are because it's the whole process of going through there and mm-hmm. tricking him you know sure and uh <laughs> like if we kill one that's got big spurs that's just a bonus i guess but that's not why we hunt yeah yeah no and, and i i just come back to the at the end of the day if you shoot a bird that let's say has three quarter inch spurs Mm-hmm. Is he most likely two years old? Yes, most likely he is. But could he be some other age? Yes, he could be. Um, and if you're, you know, at the end of the day, if that matters to you, fine. Uh, to your point, I don't care how long his spurs are. If he, if I'm able to beat him at his own game and and harvest him, I don't really care if he's got what on his legs. He doesn't have to have any spurs as far as I'm concerned, which that's another point that people need to understand. We catch a lot of birds that don't have spurs. Mm-hmm. We catch a lot of toms. It's not just a rare event. We catch a lot of them. Mm. So how old are they? I mean, if they're if they're mature and their wing says they're mature and their tail fan says they're mature and they have a nine-plus-inch beard and they don't have spurs, well, okay, so how old are they? <laughs> mm. i mean are they two or are they sub two or are they minus three or <laughs> i mean it, it, it just it's a it's a crazy topic i i just i just have to step back when i get in debates with people i just have to say okay I'm, all i can tell you is that work that was done it was done at mississippi state actually mm. and it it kind of it, i'll be honest with you guys in my world and kind of the academic turkey research world we just forgot about spurling at that point. I mean, when that study was done, it was like, okay, well, there's a lot of bias in this. So don't worry about it. Who cares how long the spurs are or how old he could be or could not be. But with hunters, it just keeps coming back up constantly. Man, in this, in this day and age, I I get worried that, you know, some I get worried one of the few years you'll see something pop up, people trying to manage their turkeys for spur length, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) folks are so the way folks some can be these days, but it is a funny topic for sure. It cannot be related to deer hunting. Like we just can't let that happen. (laughs) No, no. 
No. Trophy managing turkeys. No. Um, no. So to go to, I guess this was probably the more, the topic that I was, I guess, the most curious about. Um, last year when, we, when you were on here, probably the main subject of discussion uh, was was based off of a uh, Turkey Tuesday post that you made, which I love Turkey Tuesday, by the way. Um, and it was based on a, the results of the turkey population as occurred to the current pandemic. And that was, I think that was pretty much the majority of our discussion last time. Mm-hmm. And so I think, I know what I'm thinking and, and Jordan's thinking, I think what a lot of people are thinking is there any kind of forecast or speculation so far with spring coming up, um, is there anything to maybe kind of give a, an educated guess of what the crazy last spring and the amount of hunters out there, what effect that has had, or do we not know yet? Hey guys, going to pause the conversation for just a quick second to make sure I mentioned something we will not be going to the woods without this spring, and that is the Onyx Hunt app. Onyx has so many incredible features, the ability to add, save, and share waypoints, satellite and topo maps, the ability to save an offline map if you're hunting somewhere where your phone doesn't have any service, also doesn't burn up your battery as much if you're on an offline map, also private and public land boundaries, and the list goes on from there. This is something that we literally use every single day and i can't say enough good things about it so go and check it out today the onyx hunt app use the promo code primos 20 and save 20 percent off your onyx membership i don't think we know yet i I think all of us have suspicions um you know that the way that last spring turned out was just um it was really kind of an interesting kind of exercise if you will i I've got them. I can. I still have them sitting here looking at them on my desk. I have reams of notes that I wrote last year from um, from telecheck systems. You know, for different states, I was constantly monitoring harvest, trying to kind of trying to make a record of what was happening at the time. Because you know, as well as I do, as human beings, we get busy and and things slip off our radar screen, and we forget as time goes on, we forget about some of the things that happened to us previously and how impactful it was. Mm -hmm. So I tried to write notes about what I was seeing and what the conversations I was having with different colleagues and different States. And, and at the end of the day, in some States, it didn't pan out the way that we thought, at least based on, on harvest. Um, Some States didn't see, you know, the, the dramatic increases in harvest, that we were anticipating and some did um what i think is really interesting is states that did not see an increase in harvest yet all anecdotal evidence suggested that there were more people out hunting turkeys that is particularly interesting to me because how is that possible how could you have more effort expended and not harvest more animals? The logical conclusion that I come to is there were not more animals to harvest. In other words, whatever was out there that was going to be killed was killed, and there obviously were some mm. that were not. That makes um, all the sense in the world. You can't kill something that ain't there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And some states saw – at least based on their telecheck system, saw, you know, 
15 to 20, 25% increases in harvest. What that will mean this year, I honestly don't know that. I think the first telling sign that we'll all have is, do we hear fewer birds? You know, mm -hmm. do we, are we hearing fewer gobbling turkeys this spring? If not, then what does that tell us? Well, maybe we had decent production the previous year and we've now recruited some two-year-olds into the population that will pick up the slack. Uh, if we do hear fewer gobbling turkeys, what does that mean? Well, I suspect, you know, we've already seen these kind of, these, these declining trends in many parts of the Southeast, at least in, mm -hmm. in the Eastern U.S. Um, did, did, did the pandemic just exacerbate those declines? In other words, did we just go in and remove more birds than we typically do? And, and did we accelerate the declines in some areas? I don't know. Um, that's something that's going to take a little time to answer because, you know, we're not going to probably see this quick signal, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, and the other thing that gets me, which is, this is really hard to under, to kind of wrap your head around is, you know, turkey harvest very spatially across the landscape. And y'all know this. I mean, you have some pockets that don't get hunted very hard and, mm -hmm. and birds don't have high harvest rates or any harvest rates. And then you have some areas that just get really, you know, get hammered and, and a lot of your birds get killed. So, and that's what we see with our banding data is some areas have very low harvest rates, very few, you know, low percentage of toms are killed. And then other areas have 50 plus percent of all the toms that we ban are harvested in a, in a given season. Um, how the pandemic potentially accelerated that, that harvest, I'm not exactly sure. It'll, it'll, it'll take us some time to, to get our heads around that. Yeah. It was just, it, it was, I think that's, uh, I, obviously, I think that's what's a lot on a lot of people's minds just because it was, I think, I think last spring you had folks that never really thought about these kind of subjects, you know, mm -hmm. what, what potential does harvest have on populations? Some of the guys I think may, might not have ever really even thought about the state of the population. It was just so many places. You saw so much hunt pressure elevated from what it used to be that it just started making some people think. And it, like I said, I, I know everyone, including myself, uh, would like a quick answer, but I, I kind of had a feeling that's what it was going to be is we really don't know what what the outcome is yet or what the result is yet, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, you and I talked about this last year. Is, um, you know, I, I was myself and Brett Collier, the other person that co-authored that, that little paper we put out. We, we mm -hmm. did that. And I made that that social media post because for, for several reasons, one, to your point is I think a lot of us, myself included, hadn't really thought about what the pandemic was going to mean beyond just our own health. I mean, it, you know, when, when that thing, when it all started, it was like, my gosh, what a, what a crazy time we're, we're living in. And then the more, people that Brett and I talked to and the more colleagues that, that texted us and called us and messages us just like, gosh, man, guys, we are seeing a ton of pressure on our state lands. We're seeing, 
a lot of people that are that are hunting because they're they don't have anything else to do and they're not in school or, or what you you know whatever the situation was and and the more we thought about it we're like you know what let's just write our thoughts down and if people disagree with that's fine but at least there's a record of this is what we think could be going on and and I hope we're wrong but if we're not then 2020 could be a year that we look back on and think Maybe we should have, maybe we should have been a little more, you know, introspective and, and thoughtful mm-hmm. about what what's going on. And I'll be honest, I hope that it was just a, a blip on the radar and no big deal. But but we'll see. Uh, time will tell. Yeah, I think um, my last, I guess, the last thing I want to talk about on this subject, and then we can move to, I guess, more fun subjects about wild turkeys, is it's just. It was so interesting to me, and I don't, I don't know the solution, or I really don't know how big of a problem this is, or even if it is a really a problem. It was just, it was surprising to me. Um, so we we put that podcast out with you last year, and majority of the vast majority, I should say, of the response was positive, but there was a pocket of people that took that podcast episode as some way somebody pointing a finger at them and say stop shooting turkeys mm-hmm. you know you should stop doing that and it, it's that's why and the reason i always appreciated or, or appreciated that post in particularly is all these questions such as that that you've posed you to me you've never come across as you know pointing your finger at anybody it's just been more along the lines of posing a question but, you know, I, I realize that upsets some people because of the nature of the question, I guess. But it just bothers me some the way that some folks reacted to to finding out or asking these kind of questions. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and when when I bring up harvest and the complexities of understanding harvest or if I challenge anything that we do as turkey hunters, um. I will be criticized by some, it's typically a small segment of whoever's following what I post or or whatever. And I get that. I understand that because we as turkey hunters and hunters in general, we're very passionate about what we're doing and Mm -hmm. we care. And I can see someone reading what that post or listening to that podcast and in their own mind saying, wait a minute, what is this guy saying? Is he saying we don't need to be shooting turkeys? You know, come on, man. And it, that could not be farther from the truth. Um, what we were saying was we, there's a chance that, that we could, because of that pandemic and, and the situation that everyone was in last spring, excuse me, last spring, that we could put ourselves in, in kind of an odd situation where this bird we cherish and this activity that we that we just look forward to all year could be problematic because of the amount of pressure and the number of people and, and all that was going on. So just kind you know, folks, think about what you're doing. Think about the future. Don't, you know, if you don't, if you want to harvest your bag limit and you're you're hunting legally, go for it. But I mean, we weren't saying anything other than than just mm-hmm. kind of think about what's going on and how it could impact our future, and then make your own your own decisions. But but I understand the 
the criticisms. Um, and again, I, that's a subject that, that if you, and I, th I don't think I'm alone. I've spoken to, I've spoken to a number of other people that, that post about Turkey stuff on social media. And when they bring up anything related to what we're doing when we're hunting, there are a segment of hunters that get upset about it. Yeah. Um, and that's just peace and parcel for the territory. I know y'all deal with it as well. And, and that's fine. I've never taken it personally. I've always, because I'm a turkey hunter and I, I think about this bird and I think about managing it through two lenses. I think about it through the lens of a researcher and a scientist. And I think about it as a hunter, but I was a hunter long before I was a researcher. And I understand the passion and I understand the concern and I understand the viewpoints that disagree with mine. Mm -hmm. Um, and I appreciate those viewpoints. And I think we all should recognize that we don't all think alike, but everyone's viewpoint is valid. We just need to, you know, we need to be able to be willing to listen to each other, but, but yeah, I, I, I heard those comments and I see them fairly, fairly regularly. Yeah. Oh, I'm just, I'm sure you do. Um, I guess now I, we can move to some more, uh, I guess more fun type topics, I guess that I know. Yeah, that'd be good. Are, that'd be yeah. good. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and I really, um, yeah, it's been, it, now you're, you go to your Instagram page now and I find myself truly, I'm not just blowing smoke because, because you're on the podcast. Like I'll find myself scrolling through different Turkey Tuesdays. Cause I just, they're so interesting to me. And so, um, there's a couple of those that I was, intrigued more than the others that i met you know if it was all right i wanted to ask you to go into a little bit more detail on yeah absolutely uh, and one of those particularly and i guess it's because of the nature of what we do with primos and making game calls and um primos kind of got started you know the first calls that wilbur made were turkey calls and so mm -hmm. this one i thought was was very important to, to bring up you did a turkey tuesday about turkey vocalizations yep um, and you talked about, and I'm pretty much, again, I would butcher it if I tried to recite your post because I'm not, I, you know, more than I do. So, uh, but I know one, one of the things that, that intrigued me particularly is that you mentioned that the turkeys are able to one, some calls that we might listen to and think that's the same kind of vocalization they can differentiate between. And two, they can listen to one Turkey call that the, they can recognize each other. Yeah. from the sounds of their calls. Yeah. Yeah, so there's a lot going on with with the way this bird hears its environment compared to how we hear our environment. So mm -hmm. so part of the reason that I I when I make those posts um I try to just put enough information in there to stimulate somebody to either reach out and request more information or through their questions, it generates me, it, it, it prompts me to do another post in the future about whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and in the, the vocalization post, I was actually hoping that somebody would question about, well, how do they hear? So I actually, I think it was just last week I posted about their hearing. So how that, do they how they that's, hear that's on my notes right here of the, yeah. the next thing to ask you about. <laughs> yeah. So, so this bird, um, we know that turkeys from 
decades ago, research showed that the most likely way they recognize each other is through their heads and through their calls, that they detect each other and they recognize each other based on these characteristics of their head um, and their voice. And that makes complete sense if, if you think about it, because, you know, when turkeys fight, they peck at the head. They, they constantly are attacking the head. That's like you and I getting into a, an altercation. We look each other in the face and we, we argue or we, you know, mm-hmm. um, and they talk to each other. And, and the research on, on bird vocalizations in general very clearly shows that birds hear things differently than we do. They, we may hear a single note to a call like a yelp, you know, yuck, yuck, yuck. We have something that's simple to us and we try to make it more complex and we have different tones and pitches and well, so do they. And they hear that call in one, they can detect different frequencies within the call than we can. And two, they hear us, we hear a single note, yop, 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 yop. They may hear three, four, five, six different tones within that same call so it's more complex in their world than it is in ours we mm-hmm. and we don't really understand obviously we don't know exactly what they hear but but birds in general decipher calls differently than we do because they lack an external ear so what they do is they the calls come into their ears separately so you have a call that comes in and it's registered the volume is registered in one ear, it's registered in the other ear, and then the bird, because of, I know this sounds crazy, but the call almost permeates their, like, goes through their head, the shape of their head kind of dictates how the call is deciphered, Hmm. and they use that, along with their vision, to help them understand, well, where did the call come from, how far away is it, and then if you kind of factor in this notion that the frequency of the call, it just sounds differently to them. That's why there's, they have this uncanny ability to figure out exactly where we are and how far away we are, but they also recognize who we are. And, and I know that sounds crazy, but if you think about it, if they couldn't identify each other through their calls, how would they possibly communicate? I mean, these yeah. hands that are calling each other, they know exactly who each other is. I mean, they, they've grown up with these other birds. They've spent time in winter flocks with these birds. They know that's Karen, that's Susan, that's whoever. Um, and now all of a sudden, and we've all seen this, you end up in their backyard and you start yelping at them or cutting at them or whatever. And she gets mad. She doesn't know who you are. She, she doesn't recognize you. So she comes looking, trying to figure out, well, who is this? Um, or she thinks she recognizes you, or she thinks she recognizes this bird, but she's not sure. So she starts talking back to you, telling you, you know, get out of here, or I'm coming to check you out, what's going on. We don't understand a lot of what that means, but the bottom line is this is, you know, vocalizations, that's a way that this bird recognizes and communicates amongst themselves. And then we're kind of the imposters. <laughs> yeah. See, that that was the, that was the funny part to me because I can remember, especially my younger days of turkey hunting, I can remember listening to some guys go, 
those turkeys know, you know, they, they, they can tell the difference between who's who. And then I can remember hearing other guys go, man, they, they're just hearing another turkey, you know? Mm-hmm. So it, it makes me wonder, you know, especially since you have research to go with it, like I, it, it makes me beg the question. You, if you have an instance, like you call in a gobbler, he comes in, you shoot and miss him. If you go back out there next time and you're using that same call, it makes me wonder, does he hear that call and go, last time I came into that, something bad happened, you know? Yeah, and I don't, I don't know the answer to that. Um, it would seem logical to me that that the bird, at some level that I don't understand, would would be able to associate certain calls or certain sounds with either positive or negative, you know, experiences. Yeah. But I don't know that. Um, yeah. I just know that birds in general, you know, they've, they've, uh, they've developed ways to hear and to pinpoint sounds. And, and it, it, at least from a turkey's perspective, since that's what we're talking about, if you think about it, there's really only a few ways they can communicate with each other. They, they, they wouldn't call if it wasn't a form of communication. I mean, that's what they're using it for. So, and, and the earlier researchers, you know, one of which I've spoken at length with who, who observed birds, he very clearly, I mean, he's like, there's no question. These birds, they know each other. They know that bird knows that that cluck came from whoever. And that bird, they know abs- with absolute certainty who they're talking to yeah. when they talk. Uh, and that, again, to me, it makes sense. Yeah, it, it makes sense. It was just, it was more wild for me to actually see that solidified, you know, because I've always wondered that and you hear it, but to actually know that that actually occurs is crazy to me. And and to your point, I can remember when I was younger, one of the first people to take me turkey hunting, he said, he was t- he was telling me about how good their hearing was. And I remember he said, because I was asking him, I was like, how, you know, how good is their hearing? He said, if he wanted to, he said, you could crawl in a hole and yelp and that turkey can come and look in that hole and see you because he knows. <laughs> I, yeah. And I was, I was, I've always heard that, you know, but that this just makes it makes sense. How many yeah, times have you sat I feel there? like I'm asking all the questions. Well, no, I'm how many t- learning how many, right now. How many times have you sat there and scratched in the leaves and gotten a gobbled? Or, yeah. you know, I, I have a friend that I hunt with um, who he, he calls – so quietly just and and it's shocking to me he calls so softly and he does the most subtle i mean just barely touches the leaves with his hand his slate call is so quiet and birds gobble from hundreds of yards away and they I watched, I hunted with him a number of times this past spring. Birds come right to us, know exactly where we are. And I'm sitting there 10 yards from him, and I can barely hear the call. And, yeah. and my hearing is not the greatest anyway because of years of of not using hearing protection. But I'm thinking, damn, man, it's <laughs> it just that shows. I mean, every time I see something like that happen, it just reinforces in me that this bird has exceptional hearing and they can pinpoint sound so well it's just amazing to me yeah it, it it never does cease to amaze um the next one that was this one was particularly uh a fun one for me 
because I, I'm sure, Jordan, I'm sure you've heard it too. If we have, like, say, well, next week it's supposed to be cold, but say next week we had some warm weather coming through and somebody got a trail cam picture of their bird strutting or somebody went out and the bird's gobbling, somebody's going to say, man, they're going to be all gobbled out by the time season gets here, man. I'm worried. This, we're going to have a real early spring. I think they're going to be – all the hens are going to be bred before March. They're going to be right. having poultry on the ground by April 1st. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a that's another hot hot one. Um, you're gonna get the lynch mob coming after me, but um, yeah. So we've known for decades that toms become receptive before hens do, and, and they do that because this is a photo period driven process. In other words, day length. Mm. This is not something that just this year is dramatically different than last year. That that's not the way this works. So photo period starts to change in the spring, early, late winter, right now. Um, testosterone levels and toms are starting to, to elevate a little bit. You catch a warm day, you catch a sunny day, you catch whatever. And the, the, the testosterone levels ebb up enough to where the bird goes, I'm going to give it a shot. Mm -hmm. I'm going to gobble. I'm going to strut. The hens are oblivious to what's they're paying attention, but they're not copulating. They're not breeding. Right. Um, the research decades ago very clearly showed that there's very little, if any breeding that occurs in these winter flocks that we're seeing now. And if it is, if it does occur, which it's rare, it's usually the dominant hen and the dominant Tom in those social groups that may copulate yeah not a bunch of breeding that's going on so what you're seeing now are these toms that are hanging around together their testosterone levels are starting to ebb up a little bit they're feeling frisky the hens are not receptive but the toms don't know that so they're gobbling they're strutting for each other they're fighting with each other they're they're sorting out testing their pecking orders and the hens are going about their business. Um, this notion that they're going to be gobbled out is, I get it again, as a turkey hunter, I, I understand, but that's not true. And we yeah. have data across the Southeast very clearly showing this, that they're not gobbled out. They're just, this is just the opening act. And that, in that post you're talking about, I, I think I, I likened it to that. The play is just starting. It's not finishing. You're, we're, mm. we're just getting going. This is what they're supposed to be doing. Just step back and watch it and enjoy it. And then rest assured, come opening day, this process is still going to be ongoing because that's the way it's worked for eons in the turkey mm. world. So just everybody relax. It's going to be okay. Yeah. See, and I even asked you that, and I, I was try, I'm not trying to get the to get the mob after you. I thought I thought it might actually put some some people at ease, you know. Cause that's I can remember, man. I remember there was a, there was an older gentleman that whenever we would see him all the time at a gas station, and he would be I'm talking gravely concerned about about this subject. He would be just so convinced that turkey's going to be gobbled out, and this this spring turkey season is just going to be a wash. I mean, he oh, was I was convinced for like two years. It wasn't no sense in hunting after April the first. <laughs> 
That's what I had been told. I'm yeah. like, they're done. You don't even need to go. And I don't know if they were just decking with me, trying not to get me go hunting or really being serious, but it worked. And <laughs> yeah, they were trying to get you to hang your vest up early. Yeah. <laughs> and to to his point, the first time that I was told that, the first time was some I heard the term gobbled out, because that's usually what what I heard. That's that's the most common term down here, I think. Is they're gonna be gobbled out? I was like, man, someone called the wildlife department. Man, we can't have that. We gotta have turkey hunting, you know. It, but it, it's just, uh, yeah. You still hear. I, I, don't, I feel like I don't hear that as much, but you you definitely still hear it, especially if again. I don't think we'll hear it this year because like next week's supposed to be frigid. But if it was warm, some people would be talking about it. They'd be talking about gobbled out turkeys. Yeah, yeah, and I actually have some data that I'm going to share. Um, if you look at gobbling on, so we're studying a non-hunted site um, that turkeys behave like, we, we assume they're behaving like turkeys should behave. Mm -hmm. And you don't see any quote unquote gobbling out. They gobble all spring. They gobble all into May, early June. Uh, they just keep gobbling because that's what turkeys are supposed to do. Um, they are supposed to be gobbling in early March. That's part of their ecology. That's, I mean, that's the way they function. Mm -hmm. um, just, I just tell people, just relax. It's, it's going to be okay. Um, but I do get it. And I've thought it myself. I have years ago, I was like, man, they are, they're going to be done. And then the lot more I learned about the bird, I'm like, Mike, come on, man. They're not, they haven't even started yet. <laughs> just relax. It's going to be fine. Since we're on the subject of gobbling, uh, you've probably touched on this before somewhere else, but what kind of research have you done far as like the whole deal with barometric pressure increases gobbling and all that kind of thing? Yeah. Yeah. I actually have a student right now who's writing his dissertation and he's, this is actually a chapter. Ironically, you asked me about this. I just literally just met with him yesterday at length about this. So he's, he's taken uh, millions of gobbles, not like thousands, but a lot of gobbling data from all over the region. And we've paired it with weather data to tease out what most influences gobbling activity. And we do see um, some trends relative to barometric pressure where the kind of the rising pressure tends to result at a certain level tends to result in, in the expectation that you would hear more gobbles. Um, there are some relationships with wind, as you can imagine. Um, we don't know that that does wind actually cause the bird not to gobble as much, or we just can't hear it. Right. Hard to say. Um, there's some relationships, as you can imagine, with rain and with temperature. And, and we're at, in fact, he's, he's writing this stuff up now. We'll, we'll be posting it so people can see it. It's pretty cool. The, the take home, though, that's of real interest to me is that none of it matters that much. In other words, um, the effect of each one of these weather variables on gobbling is minuscule compared to the to the two things that really drive gobbling activity, which is hen behavior, nesting and laying behavior, and hunting. That that's the two things that 
that, that tend to drive gobbling activity, one in a positive direction and one in a negative direction, as you can imagine. When you kind of factor in all things being equal, the weather matters a lot less than their natural reproductive behaviors, which that should make sense. I mean, if, if you think about it, in their world, bad weather can't stop them from behaving as they're supposed to behave. I mean, the breeding season is short. You got to get after it. And your, your fitness, if you're a Tom, is directly tied to how much breeding you do. So if you think about it in that context, weather shouldn't change your behavior that much because if it did, some bad weather could negatively affect your lifetime fitness. And that's mm -hmm. not how animals work. I mean, that's we think about the world in a way that, that they don't. That what drives their behavior is reproduction and survival. That's it. I mean, if you're a Tom, you have to make offspring and not die while while doing it and so it, it makes sense what patrick that's my student that makes sense what he's seeing that the weather matters but the effect of the weather is not that big but we'll have that stuff finished up in fact within the next week or so and and we'll start posting it for people to see interesting awesome is there a, a particular week or whatever you always like here in Mississippi? We I don't know if it's we're on to anything or we're just think this in our head is mentally, but like usually the first week of April is like peak gobbling, whatever turkeys working right a lot of times. Is that correlation to actual breeding and all that activity? We we think the answer is yes. The reason being that in Mississippi and Alabama and Georgia, uh, over into northern Louisiana, kind of that latitude, if you just drew a line across the center of y'all, you know, those states, um, nesting, the timing of nesting, peak, incuba peak incubation is about the middle of April, which means that the peak in laying activity is about the first week of April. And in the, in the bird animal world, during laying, these hens are still fertile. In other words, they, they're laying eggs, but they're still fertile. They, they, can be, they can copulate with toms, and those toms can still be represented in those clutches. But time is running out. In, in other words, once she starts incubating, she's no longer available to breed. So if you think about it from a Tom's perspective, when birds are in the laying sequence, ecologically they're driven to competition is fierce at that point because time is running out. You need to find hens, you need to breed with those hens because she's about to be incubating and she's done with you for some potentially for the entire nesting season. Maybe not if she loses her nest and she breeds again she may breed again but but you see the point guys i mean the bottom line is in their world it makes sense to really get wound up during the laying sequence because mm -hmm. that's when the rubber's meeting the road if you will time's running short so so jordan you, you know that point I, I hear that from a lot of people and mm -hmm. i've seen that in some areas myself that that first week of april is, is pretty good um all things being equal you know if the weather cooperates and 
and you've got availability of birds that haven't been, you know, super pressured or whatever, that that period is usually pretty legit, and it makes sense from an ecological standpoint. Mm-hmm. Is there uh, any data out there where you can follow that latitude line across America and kind of figure out, like, if you're going on a trip somewhere, kind of figure out those peak, like, when the incubation and when they're going to start and all that kind of thing? Yes and no. There, and somebody may may listen to me and say, "I, you're wrong. I have that." Um, I'm not aware of anything that very clearly draws those types of lines, but there is information out there that's published. There was a there was a, actually a manuscript that that. Is available in the peer-reviewed literature. Pause. What's wrong? <laughs> you hear the dog? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. Sorry, sorry about that. <laughs> Jordan, you got a little howler back there. He had to take it. Um, well, there's there's two of them out back back there that have been barking, but I'm hoping those have not been able to hear. Have you heard the ones out I back? No, I haven't heard any other dog. <laughs> well, that's good. Back. Sorry about that. Yeah, no. So there, so there is a, a paper out there where the authors presented um, nesting dates for every state that they could pull data from. Um, that was published in 2005, and it it does do a really good job of kind of showing in tabular form. New Hampshire, this was the date of peak incubation or the range of nesting. Uh, Florida, here was the, you know, North Carolina, Tennessee, it, it, and it had data from all of the states where such data were available. Um, I actually have been meaning to, and I just haven't had time, I had been meaning to write something that does exactly what you just asked, that would provide it in a more digestible format. I just haven't had time to do it. Um, but that if someone were interested, I'm trying to think just as we talk, um, I could make that available to y'all. If y'all, if you wanted to post it on your website or something. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. It, and, uh, I mean, I, I mean, just, I would love not only like planning out trips or whatever, but just to see the difference from like a 10 day period makes in mm-hmm. here till Missouri or wherever, you know, yeah. and, uh, I know you can't knock it down to a certain day or anything like that. You may can. I don't know. But, you know, I would just be interested from uh, just because I love the research side of stuff, too, just to see what the different dates are throughout the country. Yeah. Yeah. And we, yeah. For, for whatever reason, um, the we have a lot of turkey hunters that, listens to, that listen to this podcast. Our podcast, as far as our audience goes, we are at the peak during – spring turkey talk mm-hmm. and, and that's why the, the episode we did last year was so popular and there's so yeah if any information like that we would be more than happy to share because we have a lot of people that that follow along with primos that that are always asking for that kind of stuff yeah sure i bet i bet i get the questions a lot as well yeah i'm sure you do this is one like this one just popped into my head you were talking about goblin activity and this n- might not be anything at all but I'm just curious. I have noticed and I've heard other friends say uh, for what and I've I've observed it, whether or not there's any real, you know, traction to it. I don't know. But it seems like if I'm ever 
hunting like turkeys along the Mississippi River or um, well, I'll just say the Mississippi River for now in the springtime, they, for some reason, those river turkeys seem to go consistently gobble earlier. And when I say earlier, I don't mean in the year. I mean, like in the morning time, they seem to consistently gobble earlier than any other turkeys that that we hunt. And I was just always been curious if there was any reason to that. I have no idea. Um, I, I don't, I don't, I don't have any clue as to why that would be that way. Uh, it's funny you asked me that because the only time I've ever had a bird fly down in the dark was in the Mississippi Delta. I, I had a bird that actually hit the ground and was close enough to shoot. And I couldn't, I couldn't see anything but the top of his head. Mm -hmm. That's how dark it was. Um, and that bird actually lived because I couldn't figure out how to kill him. I mean, it was so dark. It was dark. Yeah. And I just at the time thought, man, he, <laughs> that old guy was, he was ready to go. You know, he, he wanted to find a hen and breed with her. And, and I never thought about it since until you just asked that question. I don't know um yeah yeah I, I, you got me stumped on that one it's just well it's something and it i mean i've heard i've been there's been sporadic other situations where we'll be somewhere else and you'll hear this one turkey that starts gobbling earlier in the morning than any of the other ones but for some reason for like for instance i've I hunted down it on uh, togo island with brad several times and i the one of the first times i ever went down there um, we had to take a boat to where we were hunting and I had just stepped out of the boat onto the dry ground and I'm talking, it's dark, dark, dark. And the Turkey starts gobbling. And I, I made a comment to Brad about it later. And Brad was like, yeah, that's pretty, that's commonplace here. They always gobble that early. And I just, it, and it was true. Every time I've been there after that, they would always gobble early, but I always wondered about it. It's interesting. Yeah, I have no clue. No clue. Interesting. Um, so one last question, I know we're, we're about eight up the, uh, ate up the hour i don't want to eat up too much of your time i know you've got to be a busy time especially especially with spring coming on um i know we talk a lot about implications on turkey populations and hunting and harvest um and i know i've, I've spoke some about the small group that that gets you know angry and wants to reach out to us which that's all fine you know if you want to ask questions i'm, I'm always there but the majority of folks respond positively and um a lot of questions that we get jordan can uh can you know can confirm this a lot of the questions we get are usually habitat related or what can i do to my place and so this may be you know a, a big question but just the individual turkey hunter doesn't have to be a large-scale landowner just the individual turkey hunter is there any practical things that that guy can do to make a positive impact to help turkeys Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And I, when I'm asked this question, I usually start out at the very low end of the spectrum where it's a person like me before I got to where I'm at in my career, where I was just a, just a guy that was a turkey hunter. I didn't own land. I hunted public land. I had no access to private land and I hunted on weekends mostly because that's when I was off. What could that person do? Well, 
that person can buy a hunting license. That's a positive. That person can support conservation efforts that are focused on wise management of, of habitat, of the resource. They can support their state agency. They can be active with friends that maybe have access to land or have access to someone's ear. So in other words, hey, I don't own any land, but I've been paying attention to this research. And here are the things that I, that I think we need to pay attention to. Tell somebody. Tell somebody that may or may not agree with you. Tell your local biologist. Tell the commissioner. Tell a politician. Speak say something to somebody and if a lot of turkey hunters did that we would have a bigger collective voice than we currently have Mm -hmm. if you do own land and even if it's a small piece of land think about how you could manage your property to make a positive effect on the bird even if you own 10 acres so you got 10 acres you own uh, nothing but hardwoods, 10 acre hardwood patch. All right. Well, what could I do with 10 acres that would matter to a turkey? Well, you can talk to your neighbor. You can see what your neighbor owns. You can get on Google Earth and figure out what the neighborhood looks like from a turkey's perspective, understanding that they may use several thousand acres during their annual home rains. Okay, well, I own 10. I've got a buddy that lives down the road. He owns 20. You start thinking about the landscape as this bird perceives it, which is at a much bigger scale than the way we look at it. How could I make a positive effect at the home range scale for this bird? Well, if I don't own that much land, maybe I could work with my neighbors to affect that much area. Mm-hmm. If I do own that much land, they what we're doing, we're kind of stepping up in scale. Now you, you're a larger landowner, you own a couple hundred acres, a thousand acres, whatever. You're now starting to get at the point where you by yourself can affect positive change for this bird. So look at your property from the perspective of, okay, well, what does nesting habitat look like? What does brooding habitat look like? What does winter habitat look like? Do I have roost sites that I know birds use? And what you'll realize is very few landowners, unless you own a big piece of property, have enough acreage and enough diversity of habitat to hold a population of turkeys all year long. We're usually sharing our birds with somebody else. Right. If that's the case, identify where your strengths are and where your weaknesses are and play to your strengths and identify your weaknesses and figure out who your neighbors are that can help you with those weaknesses. In other words, I get, here's a question I get all the time. I've got turkeys all over my property in the winter and they, they're gone. Mm-hmm. Come opening day, they're gone. Well, what that means is you have quality winter habitat and you're lacking spring reproductive habitat. There's something about your property that they are not able to select successfully during the spring when they're transitioning from I'm gregarious and living with my buddies to I'm in my lek. I've got my toms that I'm, these are the males that I'm associated with. Here's my hens. I'm thinking differently. I'm eating different foods. 
I'm moving differently. I'm roosting differently. I'm doing things differently. That's what's happening when your birds disappear. Well, where are your birds going? Well, they're going right down the road to my neighbor. Well, then go talk to that neighbor and see if that neighbor has the same mindset you do. And if he or she does, great. Try to work cooperatively, understanding that your your birds are not your birds. It's everyone's birds. And maybe you could start managing your buddy's place or your neighbor's place or helping them understand what the science says in a way where the broader population of birds in your area increases. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, that may not translate to you having suddenly having better turkey hunting when your birds disappear every spring, but for the collective good of the resource, it matters. So that's what I usually tell people is think at the scale at which you can make a positive effect. And sometimes some of us can't make, I mean, we can only have an effect at a very small scale, but if enough of us think about it in that way and talk to each other and engage each other, then we can have a bigger effect and we can move the needle. If we try to do it on our own, on your property or my property, you hear success stories all the time. Well, I've been managing my habitat intensively for years. I've been conducting predator management. I've been really wise with the birds that I kill. My harvest, you know, is, is appropriate. And I've got a sustainable flock and I have for years. Awesome. Awesome. If that's the way you've been doing it, that's great. Now let's figure out how we do that more. Let's figure out if we could do that down the road from you. Can we do it on your neighbor's property? Would your neighbor be willing to partner with you, et cetera? Think cooperative. Um, and if we did, then I think we could, we could move the needle. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I'm, I love the way you answer that question because I don't, I can't tell you how many messages I've seen or conversations I've had where you hear someone say something like, I, you know, I've only got 80 acres. I've only got a hundred acres. What, I mean, there's really nothing I can do, but there's like, you said, there's little positives that you can do that will, it might not be a huge effect, but it's an effect. It's better oh, than a little effect or a bad effect. Absolutely. I mean, if you, if you look at this, at this bird, so let's say you own 80 acres. Okay. And birds come through your property here's the, the common scenario I, I, I hear is, well, I see them during deer season. Mm-hmm. They're there. They, they show up. They're there for a few days. They're gone. They come back a week later. Yep. That's exactly what they're doing. They're in a winter flock and they're moving through your property and they're using resources and they're moving on. Um, think about what you could do to make that bird more successful on your property. Are there things you could do to improve how much forage they get per unit effort of, a, of feeding? So in other words, when turkeys have to move, they're burning energy. So if they don't have to move as much and they can get more forage, then they are better. It's, it's better. Now, does that mean just throw a pile of corn on the ground? No, that's not what that means. What it means is manage your habitat in a way where you are allowing the birds to spend more time in less area. Um, So you own 80 acres of hardwoods. Have a forester come in and and look at your, at your size class and figure out, Hey, you know, what's my acorn production relative to the potential that I could remove some of these trees. And, And a lot of people don't, they don't realize this, but 
managing hardwoods can be really beneficial. Not just sitting there and looking at them, but actually cutting them. Like cutting, harvesting, selective harvest in hardwoods can increase acorn yields in the remaining trees and it can improve understory conditions. There are things you can do with almost any forest community to benefit a turkey. The science is out there to help you. You just have to ask somebody, whether it's your local NRCS agent, contact a forester, contact me, contact you. Somebody can put you in contact with the person that can help you make that 80 acres the best it can be. Mm. And if you do that and I do that, then we are going to make a collective change. It, we're going to improve things for this bird and, and other species that use the same habitats. So thing, I, I get that. My, I, I understand. I used to own 13 acres and I sold it when I moved to Georgia. And I remember thinking, man, I'd love to make this a great place for turkeys and deer. And But hell, it's only 13 acres. You know, what am I going to do with 13 acres? And then the more I thought about it, I was like, well, this is a big bahia grass field with some with five acres of woods. I was like, well, and it's got privet all over it. Well, what if I went in and released all that privet and got rid of that privet and opened the canopy up a little bit? I could get some different native legumes and forbs. And what if I sprayed some of this bahia grass and converted it to warm season grasses? Well, then I could just burn them every two years and and I started thinking outside the box and I mm -hmm. realized that on 13 acres am I going to move the needle no but I bet you if I talked to my neighbor that had 20 acres which he did he owned 20 acres it looked the same then we'd have 33 acres and then if I went across the street there was a guy that owned 200 acres it's like well now we're talking if we could if I could convince him to manage his then all of a sudden we have over 200 acres that we're that we have in in improved habitat for deer mm -hmm. and for turkeys and, and other species that is the mindset i hope people will take because it's going to take that to move the needle yeah so i, I, I love that i really do because I, I a lot of folks always think answers like that are only catered to the large landowners and so that that was that was very helpful that answer um so tell us that where can folks because again i know folks are going to ask about this podcast before we let you go tell us where folks can find you on social media your instagram you're you're like the you're the go-to guy for for wild turkey information these days yeah that's a that's <laughs> a very humbling um thing too i i, I get contacted a lot and and I appreciate people doing that. I appreciate people trusting me to give them information. Um, I do I do have people that reach out to me and they disagree with me. And I actually appreciate that as much as anything because I do think we, we need to listen to each other. Um, as far as my social media accounts, yeah, you can, I mean, if you just get on Instagram or Twitter and search on wild turkey doc, just the word wild turkey, then DOC, you'll find me. Um, on Facebook, it's just my name. And I haven't altered that platform to be the same as the other two. And, and I guess I'll just leave it the way it is. But mm. but yeah, you can find, I, I post uh, I post every week, like you mentioned, on Tuesdays. I started doing that really just because uh, I was frustrated with 
the information I was seeing that was being put out by by people, mostly biologists that were putting out information and just getting soundly chastised for it. Some of those people were my friends, former students, and it, it really frustrated me. So I started thinking, well, you know what? I'm going to start posting about this bird and about the research on this bird. And I'm going to tell people what the science says and what it doesn't say. Mm. Um, say what we know, and I'm going to talk about some things that we don't know. And it started out really small and nobody was, <laughs> nobody paid attention to me. And, and I've been fortunate that some people like you have reached out to me and allowed me to talk on podcasts and in person. And it's been, it's been great. It's, it's, it's exploded. People are, are, are paying attention to it. And I think that's great. It's very, again, it's very humbling to have that opportunity and that, that platform. Um, I post on other stuff too, but, but mostly it's turkey stuff. I'll, I'll actually be posting some information about some deer work that we're doing as well um, that I think people will be interested in. But, but uh, yeah, so go on social media and find me. And if you message me I'll, with questions, I, I try to respond in a timely manner. Sometimes it takes a week or two to, to sure. get back with you. But uh, it's just it's not because I'm, I'm not looking or paying attention. It's just the volume of information that people want. Sometimes it takes me a, a while to get around to it. Sure. Well, man, I, I can tell you, certainly I, I appreciate it. And I know that it's making an impact. I can tell just from, from watching the popularity of Turkey Tuesday grow from, you know, just watching it from the outside. And, and then also as well, it's just the amount of questions that we get in every year, be it on Jordan's page, my page, the Primo's page, there are folks asking questions that that they were not asking before they're science-based questions and wildlife biology-based questions they're looking for information um and, and that's coming in at a volume or sometimes even on subjects that i'm not used to seeing and it, it's it's pretty encouraging so thank you for that and uh thank you again for your time today jordan you got anything else to add i learned a lot <laughs> that's what i, I want to do every day yeah well i appreciate the opportunity to talk with you it's always good yeah, well, we appreciate you, and uh, when this comes out, we'll, we'll tag you and everything. I think this will be another good episode, but that's going to wrap us up. Again, thank you, and guys, thank you for listening to the Speak the Language podcast.